everyone. It's Thursday, September 17th, 2008. Welcome to our Neurobiology Podcast Series. Our guest today is Dr. Gloucester Aaron. He's an assistant professor of biology at Wesleyan. On our panel today, we have Charlie Wilson. Hey, just got in from teaching class. Uh, Carlos Palladini. Hello, glad to be back, Yeah. Fidel Santa Maria. Hey, how's it going? And for the first time, Michael Ferris. Hello. And myself, I'm Salma Karashi. I'll be hosting the discussion today with our speaker. Gloucester, in a, in a recent paper, you tackled the problem of looking at the activity of a whole circuit by measuring subthreshold activity in a single cortical neuron and using a rigorous quantitative approach to show that cortical networks contain neurons that fire in repeating motifs. Um, could you talk a little bit just briefly about this work and maybe how you became interested in network dynamics and maybe what some of the big picture questions you want to address with your work are and take it as you will. That's a, sort of a lot, but... Right. I wasn't uh, initially interested in looking at network dynamics. I was actually trying to create this system where you could find synaptically coupled neurons. And it wasn't working out, essentially. And sometimes it would, sometimes it wouldn't. But I think I'd find these two neurons that were synaptically coupled, and they weren't. Then I wondered, maybe they have something in common. I'd record them for a while and see that they were synchronized, at least. There was something feeding them. Then I wondered if these synchronized events would repeat later on, and I was basically just looking at all this data I had and trying to make something of it, essentially. And then I became more interested in network dynamics because that's where it had, that's where the interesting results were in the data I had. So we abandoned temporarily the uh, synaptic coupling search and went just looking at the network dynamics, and then we brought in some imaging data and put it all together into this package. But it's, it's actually fairly old now. That was published in 2004 although we're having a response being published hopefully in this year. So, but the work has been controversial in that there have been suggestions that some of these repeating motifs could just be due to subthreshold voltage fluctuations, and it has nothing to do with network dynamics. And right. how do you respond to that? And, I think it's a fair comment. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we presented the evidence that we could that they are recurring, but there's, there's no proof that they're deterministically generated from the network. Uh, there's some compelling evidence, I think, where it has to go in the future is to actually do experiments to manipulate the system, mm-hmm. generate them or make them shut down and so forth. But we're not the only people who have shown that these repeats are sort of compellingly there, but mm-hmm. not, not proven to be. So I, I think it's interesting that there was a shared author of the, the two papers with the opposing viewpoints. Right. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Do you, how did that come to pass? Is there? A- well, we found out before it was published last year that it was coming out uh, from one of the editors at the, at the journal, and um, so we got in touch with them, and uh, we were both invited to a conference last year, uh, and we've never actually met each other. We, we did all the, these interactions before via email and on the phone, but basically his part of the paper was giving me data from the cat that was in vivo. We didn't have any in vivo data. They did they had some very nice intracellular in vivo data. and. Uh, but yes, he did look at this in a different way, came up with contrary results. We were both invited to a conference, made back-to-back talks, and uh, it was fine. Um, the work that we have coming out now doesn't really refute his results either. It just explains the discrepancies between them and uh, criticizes the detector program itself. In his paper, he used exactly the same detector program. In fact, he used basically the program that I gave him, and then he translated into C++ from MATLAB. But it's essentially the same program. 
So it could be improved with a better detector program and, again, by doing experiments. And I think, I think the whole process has uh, brought it up to a higher level. I mean, we learned from his paper the problems that you know, I've sort of presented today. So uh, it's, it's been good in the long run. You, still, you seldom see refutation of your own work, but it's kind of admirable in, in some ways to sort of go back and revisit your own work and reinterpret. And yeah, there's, there's some other things I, I might rather be doing, but um, it, it still has been a learning experience, so that's, that's good. So your, your paper, but when, I guess when it came out, it seemed like it generated a lot of excitement um, in terms of the Sinfire chain hypothesis. And I think the News and Views was written by, by Moshe Abelez mm-hmm. for, for your paper, and he seemed pretty enthusiastic about the result. So wh- where, what's your take on that? Where do you lie in, in, in being embraced by, by that uh, camp? Oh, I, I have no problems with that. I'm, I'm going to be meeting with him in, in a couple months and see what his take on it still is. I'm not sure where he stands on it. But uh, I didn't see, the, the evidence that we have is consistent with some of the proposals of the SINFIRE chain hypothesis, but I mean, we didn't actually see nodes of SINFIRE chains being activated. It, it, again, it's something that's just consistent with some of the predictions. Actually, what's interesting to me about your data with regard to the SINFIRE chains is that this is a situation where you see the predictions of, of the Sinfire chain in part fulfilled, but in a situation where it's much harder to imagine that there actually are Sinfire chains. Right. And one of the most powerful arguments for Sinfire chains, of course, there was never any sort of anatomical demonstration of these uh, populations of neurons that are synchronously activated, but it was this very precise timing that, that was observed in vivo. And so um, I just think it's interesting that, in a way, by finding such strong evidence that has been interpreted for being for being pro Sinfire chain in a situation where it seems unlikely it <coughs> undermines the that concept, or at right. least the the inter- interpretation of the data that's out there. So so the reason you say it's unlikely is because it's this very small slice. It's a small slice and you see it, it seems like um, at the very least uh, these Sinfire chains would be compromised. So if you see them pretty easily in a slice, then they must be really easy to see in Vivo, right? Well, um, yeah, yeah. So you expect to see many more of them right. in vivo recordings, and the in vivo recordings are not, or it's still, I think, at least in some contexts, controversial about whether or not there are repeating patterns like that when you use extracellular right. activity. And and the intracellular recordings are much harder to do in, in vivo. You, it's very hard to get a good voltage clamp recording in vivo. Um, there's another weird uh, thing about this too is that if you we actually did this model where we injected maybe. Uh, well, this wasn't me. This was uh, this was this was uh, the group in Tokyo that did this. This being Gaia and Watoro, but they created a artificial waveform, an artificial intracellular trace, which was composed of nothing but repeating motifs. And if you have like a hundred or two hundred of them, you can easily pick them out with any search program. If you have a thousand of them, you can't pick out anything. So it's, just, it's a funny result. It's like this uh, sort of fail-safe thing. It's like, well, of course we have them, but you'll never find them because there's too many. Mm-hmm. But if you have too many, it's like just a cacophony, and you can't resolve any particular synaptic input, and you can't find any repeats intracellularly, which is another potential failing of the method in itself. So would the, uh, for example, this, this 
number that they arrived at that became too many? Is this like a, a threshold thing? Yeah. And it's does that compare favorably to, say, the number of synapses that a pyramidal neuron and cortex receives? It's not outlandish. I think it was 1,000 uh, right. in like a five-minute recording. So I'm wondering, though, if that, if it's a point, if a neuron reaches the point at which you can no longer detect the motifs, then does that mean that the motifs are functionally not existent for that neuron and that the sinfire chain can't conduct anymore? Because so many sinfire chains have now converged onto each other that basically none of them can carry a signal. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, the, 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 the model that we're using is that this neuron is listening to the sinfire chains passing around uh. it. I mean, it's probably taking place in a sinfire chain, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to detect that. Or well, with the you might, optical you might method, you ought yeah. to be. In fact, it seems to me with the optical method, the interpretation given to that is that each frame in the movie is a sequence of events in a sinfire chain. It it could be. Yeah, I mean, but again, that, that stuff but is in a But you're seeing burst of activity, right? If I remember correctly, in that paper... Mm -hmm. um, you're not seeing single spikes. It depends on the uh, imaging. You're that looking you do. at the burst. That's in the uh, the paper that came out in 2004, the science paper. You're right, not, that's the science paper. You can't resolve the single action potentials right. with the imaging the way it's done. Uh, right. There isn't the sensitivity, so you're seeing sequences of bursts in neurons that are. So in that case, repeatable. the seeing fire chain is in the burst. It's a subset of the activity of the network. It's only in the burst that is encoded. Uh, it will be encoded in this burst. That's the only thing that you're seeing here. You're not seeing single spots. You know, the same kind of data get used in these uh, avalanche uh, models of mm -hmm. cortex. That basically the same kind of slices and bursts of activity occurring in a bunch of different neurons at once. What's your take on that? On that as an alternative model of exactly the same thing? Yeah, sadly, I haven't looked that closely at it. Those are in. Uh, I think those are in cultures or in slice cultures. They started out in cultures, but yeah. now they have migrated into slices. Is that right? Yeah. I'm going to meet with the uh, person who started that, um, I think. But no, I'm not, I'm not too familiar. I've, I've looked at it, but the mathematics of the avalanche is something I haven't tackled yet. It's, uh, it's It seems like a more complicated idea than these sinfire chains to me at it first glance. So all of these are subclasses of the general category of things, which is, I guess, called neuronal assemblies. And I think that Moshe was originally thinking about a mechanism that could create and sustain activity in a neuronal assembly in the head sense. Right. And uh, it seems to me that uh, evidence for neuronal assemblies was you know, not so great before the methods that allow us to see a bunch of cells at once. And that idea that you get repeating sequences of, of different neurons engaged at different times, then you get this sequence, and that that sequence can happen again, is one of the best reasons for thinking that the cortex actually can create neuronal assemblies that I've ever seen. Now, for, of course, for some people, you don't need a reason to believe in neuronal assemblies, they just have to be true uh, on the face of it because how else could the brain work? But for me, I've always wondered, you know, is, is there ever going to be a, 
a single shred of evidence in favor of the neuronal assembly idea. Such a powerful idea. Well, there's been some that's been put out there, right? And I think Ken Harris's group had a decent paper about neuronal assemblies. Um, but just only in the sense they could see the same sort of neurons coming up together at the same time, kind of like an upstate. Sorry, Ken. Sequence. <laughs> well, it's been a while since I looked at that as well. Um, I don't know. I, th I think they'll be finding more evidence for it. They, they, and, and he just came out with another paper last year showing something like this. So he'd be the person to talk to. You should find him there. Yeah, he'd be a good talk. Maybe we should have you both, and then you could talk about neurons. Back to back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to talk about, um, in a more general sense, um, just about about information coding in general. Um, you know, your, your take on the rate code versus patterns versus, you know, what's your sort of broad perspective on, on uh, information coding. If you could talk a little bit more about Sure. It. Well, you know, finding evidence for one doesn't preclude the other necessarily. It doesn't have to be either or. But it, it seems clear to me at least that um, a pattern code as opposed, to a, uh, as opposed to a rate model, you mean like a firing rate code, mm -hmm. gives you uh, more information you know, among a group of neurons. Uh, and I think there's plenty of evidence for it. And at the same time, in some systems, you do see where the rate of firing is important. Well, you know, for example, in the neurons that innervate muscles, you know, you see definitely a rate code. The strength of muscle contraction is correlated with the rate of firing in the neuron. Um, so I, I think it depends on the system you're looking at. But for example, in the muscle, I don't, I don't know much too much about physiology of the muscle. Has anybody tried to deliver uh, coded, a temporal code to the muscle, to a muscle? Well, just in terms of rate, they definitely have. Well, everybody has done rate yeah. for 100 years. But has anybody asked the question of temporal code yeah. in muscle contraction? Oh, yeah. Oh, people have studied the effects of pairs and little sequences and, and you know short-term plasticity okay. that would affect... Uh, and and all of that stuff can be used to predict what would happen in the res in response to arbitrary patterns of inputs, mm. and those predictions have been checked. Mm -hmm. So it is. Um, I think the the right answer to your question is yes. The the neuromuscular junction response dynamics have been studied in depth, and it's possible at this point to predict the response of a muscle to just about any pattern of input that you'd like to deliver. Now that doesn't, I don't think it quite addresses the question that you're going after, right. but that's the only kind of experimental... Right, I mean, uh, I understand that they've done this experiment, but they, like, will, can you send a, a, a digital code to a muscle instead of a braid code? I mean, that's, I don't think there's an answer, experimental answer right now. Because right. the question has not been asked. Well, you do know what a muscle would do if you did that. Right, right. You, and so you could easily check to see whether the right. muscle would do anything more interesting to, right. you know, dot, dot, dash, dot, than to dot, dash, dot, dot. Exactly, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. And, uh, and so all of that stuff is, is well known. I think the conclusion is that the neuromuscular junction uses a rate code. Mm -hmm. 
that after after all of that stuff is done. But that really has to do with what the motor neuron is doing more than with what the neuromuscular junction does. You know, the motor neuron. So I was thinking about though the same question, but not in the neuromuscular junction. Mm-hmm. But you might you were ten, so you you must have been influenced by George Gerstein and yeah, worked in his lab for uh, a semester. So the, it probably enormously influenced, and it's it shows. Yeah, well, and, I took a correlation technique and uh, applied it to these recordings. So one of George's cool ideas and sometimes observations was temporal repeating patterns in single neurons. Right. And it almost seems to me that your sequences of activity have to eventually mean that. I mean, if, if every neuron is only recruited one time in a sequence, then of course that would be a degenerate case of a repeating pattern. But if the sequence recruited that same neuron again a little later in the sequence, then you basically have what what George had been talking about. Well, sure. And, you know, you can artificially induce a neuron to give a very precisely repeating spike sequence, you know, with a good, strong, noisy yeah. stimulus. You know, if you really lead it by the nose, you can do it. And uh, they have these in vivo recordings in various parts of the visual system where they do, you know, you, you present a complex visual scene and you do get these very precisely reliable spike times. and not just in the retina, but in the LGN, uh, maybe less in the visual cortex. So it, it's possible. So you're picturing those part of the same phenomenon that you're looking at. Uh, only that, only now we're just peering at one neuron that's part of this big, complicated pattern of things. Right. I'm saying it, it's possible. I don't know what they're for in, I guess in our little slice of cortex. There is an interesting difference there in that at least in the um, in the visual system it's driven by repeated stimulus whereas these re- these spon- these events that you record are not evoked by anything it's interesting right. that they would recur without a recurring drive stimulus yeah well the, it, it goes along with this theory that I was I was trying to sort of spell out which I don't understand myself but just that the cortex itself is engendered to generate patterns uh, it's 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 something that it's 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 an organizer. It organizes stimuli coming into it, no matter where it comes from. And so, if you just have an isolated cortex there, you do have some of these intrinsically bursting neurons, which are supplying the drive. I mean, these neurons are firing by themselves spontaneously, and that drive is going to go out. It's going to become organized. It's going to feed back onto the drivers themselves, and eventually, you get this uh, organization in something which. I think the patterns that we see, that we record, I don't think they were there in vivo. I think they were created in the few hours after we took the slice out. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it's a completely different system, completely foreign to where it was. But it will take this seemingly chaos and create patterns. I mean, the world around us is very chaotic, but we create a pattern from it. Um, so I was just thinking the kind of pattern that you're looking at is a kind that is called chaotic. I mean, it's non-repeating. <coughs> it's a non-repeating pattern. Um, I, know, I know something about how I would design a neuron or a group of neurons to make a repeating pattern, to make a periodic right. output. Uh, but if I wanted to make a group of neurons make a non-periodic output, my choices are a chaotic network or a noisy network. We get a little bit of both, though. We do get periodic patterns in these as well. 
we were told to throw them out because that they said that was another question. But uh, well, especially in vivo, you can't you can't record them and not see oscillations in periodic patterns. But he, but even in the slice, you can detect these oscillations as well. So they're they're still there, right. and, and so the slice is oscillating, not quite as strong as it is in vivo. Well, the time scales are going to be different in in, in these recordings. I mean, the oscillations can happen in all sorts of. Uh, temporal intervals, right? I mean, you're only talking about minutes or or so of recordings, as opposed to uh-huh. you know, so you're saying that periodic. happens on a bigger scale. Yeah, uh-huh. a this is scale. the quasi-periodic uh, escape. Yeah. So everything is still <laughs> made of um, I, I wonder if you did the ex- experiments. If you if that's if the oscillation is because of the connectivity, right? Did you try uh, doing experiments with different thickness, uh, slice thicknesses? No. no. So as you go thinner and thinner, you will see more random behavior, less patterns, right? Right, or just a smaller slice, even. even uh, right. If you get right, either. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you can, yeah, exactly. I was thinking in the Z direction, but, but yeah, in the XY direction, you yeah. can do the same thing. And because I guess you were taking coronal slices, yeah. uh, that will kind of work because you get the, if you make it more like a rectangle, um, you get rid of the lateral connections coming from the bottom layers of the cortex. Yeah, it'd be interesting so to compare those recordings. Yeah. Right. <coughs> Might expect fewer. And the other is like it goes with the this idea of your Japanese collaborators that um, if you increase the number of patterns or the input, then you stop seeing or detecting in a reasonable amount of time right. um, those patterns, right? So the experiment will be I don't know if also if you did it that to perfuse the slice with uh, glutamate with different concentrations of glutamate. And to say, to see if you get more or less of these patterns. Of course, it will increase the noise. Maybe it will be impossible to do the statistics, but uh, right, right, in a right. reasonable amount of yeah. uh, time in the in the experiment, right, to keep the. I can try that. My hypothesis is that if you perturb the uh, <laughs> pharmacology at all of this slice, you would lose all the patterns uh, for a little while until it readjusted to the new synaptic uh, environment. Okay. But, mm-hmm. but that'd be a nice way of testing it. I mean, they, sure. they, they sort of did that in, in our lab by giving a dopamine agonist and got rid of all the patterns. Would the pattern be the same, though, after it readjusted? I don't know. He didn't wait, you know, we didn't wait long enough to see if patterns came back. As, no, you, know, you don't know whether they better. would have come back or not. No, no. And it would be interesting if they were the same patterns or not, because if it's a neuronal assembly, one would predict that the pattern would be almost identical after it readjusts itself, because you didn't do anything to the anatomy of the Not system. necessarily, because so, in the plesia, uh, in the somatogastric uh, ganglion experiments, you uh, have the same network, and the network will activate differently depending on, on neuromodulators, right? So you wouldn't you would necessarily, I mean, the anatomy, you have this dynamical um, changes in the network, the uh, architecture is the same, but the yeah, so the, I mean, but that, that's what happened when they put dopamine in. They lose the pattern that they they were seeing beforehand. But it, it doesn't make any sense because that modulator is not working in any kind of modulation in terms of an in vivo animal. But um, 
I, I think I think what Gloucester is saying is that there's something intrinsic about cortex itself that it just creates patterns, right? And that intrinsicness of it is has to be its anatomy, and therefore it creates a pattern. So if you cut a slice, that slice is going to have a unique pattern, and then you can disturb it with a modulator, but it, it will. I think what you're saying is that it will eventually regain that pattern. Right, and and the other evidence for the idea is that you can find patterns very well in uh, cultured cells. So you take a bunch of neurons that have been, you know, they, they don't have any connections initially. You just throw them down onto a dish. They make connections with each other, and you find very robust patterns. And uh, I did this. Lots of people have done this. And so it's a bunch of cells communicating with each other, creating these patterns, just like these uh, cultures also like to have a certain firing rate. You know, there, there's a communication, a certain homeostasis that they like to reach for some reason. And uh, how they do it, I don't know. What happened with dopamine? Everything just go quiet or you got no, unpatterned activity? He, he said that there, there were far fewer patterns. Huh? Just much harder to find. And did you wash out? And, and did they come back after you washed out? That would be... Uh, can't remember. Something interesting, right? Four years ago now, and I didn't no, no. pay much. Oh, okay. That because that will be yeah. very interesting. Give an antagonist, and the patterns would become Returning monster. Oh, yeah. I think he did that, actually. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. I to check that. So do you think um, all of cortex is sort of equipotent, that you see these sorts of patterns everywhere? Is it uh, is one part, is type of cortex special versus other parts? Uh, I'm sure talking about somatic, I mean, right. Uh, our are in primary visual cortex. I'm sure primary visual cortex is different from uh, frontal cortex. And actually, Gaia's experiments were, were in frontal cortex. Mm. So we actually did these in very different parts of the brain. <clears throat> but no, I, 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 I bet they're different. I just don't know how. Someone's been doing experiments like that, though, just looking at the different cell types you find there. Well, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you all next week. Bye.